Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. Hey there, listener. It's Ray Solomon, a producer with Colorado Edition. Before we launch into today's show, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. We want you to know that we are here, committed every day to bringing you the stories that matter to you and can help you figure out this new world that lays ahead. We can only do that important work with financial contributions from listeners like you. It's been a long haul and a hard ride this past year, and not everyone is in a position to make a contribution. But if you are able to, your contribution makes it possible for everyone to listen to the show and helps us even to find new listeners. You can find out more about how to donate at KUNC.org, and I encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening to the spiel, and here's today's long-awaited show. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, the first round of 2020 census data came out this week. We have been waiting for this presence for uh, a while, and so we're really excited to get these numbers. Coming up, we take a look at the new numbers and their accuracy. We'll also get a breakdown of how the state is spending a chunk of its federal stimulus funding on early childhood. That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Over the next few months, child care providers in Colorado and others working here in the early childhood sector will start to receive federal stimulus money from the second pandemic stimulus package passed by Congress back in December. That second relief package included $10 billion for early childhood allocation. Colorado officials will be doling out $119 million to early childhood mental health consultants, prospective early childhood teachers, and community colleges, among others. Anne Shimke is a senior reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. She recently broke down the state's plan for spending this chunk of early childhood stimulus funding, and she's here to walk us through it. Hi, Anne. Great to be here. So we just briefly mentioned there some of where the money is going, but the majority of this $119 million is going directly to child care providers. Tell us about what that looks like. So there's two pots of money within the $119 million that are going directly to providers. One of them is about 30-ish million, and that is in the form of sustainability grants. Basically, those sustainability grants will be available to child care providers across the state. The focus is on helping their workers. So for example, the money can be used for hazard pay to cover benefits for child care workers to increase or sustain the number of hours they have. So that's one pot of money. There's going to be an additional about $36 million over two years that is going to go to providers who serve children, low-income children in the state's child care subsidy program. That money is going to increase the rates paid to those providers who participate by 5%. Plus, providers who care for infants and toddlers, which is a focus area and also a shortage area for child care in our state, they will get a little extra boost from some of that child care subsidy money. Also, providers who 
provide care in counties where the cost of care is higher, they'll also get a little bit of boost from that pot of money. Those are kind of the two main buckets that go directly to child care providers. Um, and it's worth knowing that about 44% of Colorado's child care providers participate in the subsidy program that targets low-income families. What will all of this mean for families who maybe take their children into these providers? So good question. There's about $7 million that's allocated to reduce the parent fees for families that participate in the state subsidy program. The parent fee will be limited to basically a maximum of 10% of a family's gross income. So that is one area that is specifically going to help parents and families. Another big part of this plan is workforce expansion. Officials hoping that spending some money here can bring in a new batch of certified child care professionals and preschool educators into the field. Any connection between this expansion and the upcoming Universal Preschool launch that's on the horizon? Universal Preschool um, is going to launch in the fall of 2023 in Colorado, and basically it's going to provide free preschool to all four-year-olds whose families are interested. One thing in order to ramp up and prepare for this program, Colorado needs more child care teachers and preschool teachers. So about $12 million of this $119 million is going to provide things like free community college courses to prospective workers, loan forgiveness, scholarships, bonuses, free online classes for educators who are interested in becoming preschool directors, perhaps. The idea is with this $12 million to mint about 2,700 new childcare and preschool workers, some of those which will obviously um, come into play as Universal Preschool launches. Something we're always interested in here on the show is mental health. And uh, looking through the state's plan, it, it looks like there's interest in expanding mental health care in the early childhood sector as well. Tell us about that. The money is going to pay for additional mental health consultants. The state already has a program where it funds 49 early childhood mental health consultants. And these are basically professionals who work with parents and providers when kids struggle with mental health issues or challenging behavior. A lot of times these consultants can find ways to better handle these behaviors or solve the issues um, that are coming up for these children within their family and also within their child care setting. So currently 15 of these 49 positions are only temporarily funded with money from the first stimulus package. So this new money coming from the second stimulus is going to extend those 15 positions, as well as add three new positions. So it just kind of bulks up what's already in place in terms of early childhood mental health. Well, you mentioned first and second stimulus. There was another federal stimulus package passed in March, and I understand there was also some early childhood money attached to that. How much is Colorado getting and have they begun to allocate funding from that third package? The American Rescue Plan is going to send around $530 million for various early childhood efforts to Colorado. These range from direct help for child care providers to efforts around child care abuse prevention. So it's a whole range of um, 
goals there, but the, the money has not been allocated yet. State officials said this month that um, they're going to be doing focus groups and surveys and basically getting input from a lot of people before they come up with a spending plan for that. So I would guess that's not going to come down for another few months. Ann Shimke is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to her full breakdown of where all this federal early childhood funding is going here in our state at our website, KUNC.org. And thanks for breaking things down for us. Thanks for having me. Following a long year in which many Coloradans found themselves struggling with mental health issues, lawmakers have introduced several mental health-related bills this session. Some of these are related to the pandemic. Others are more broadly aimed at strengthening behavioral health services across the state. Just last week, Governor Jared Polis signed two bills into law, one which creates a new state agency to oversee behavioral health services, and another is focused on suicide prevention. We're joined now by KUNC's mental health reporter, Lee Patterson. Hi, Lee. Hey, Erin. Is there any main theme to these bills that are being taken up at the Capitol? Not really. There are over 12 bills this session that touch on mental health in some way, and I would just say there's a wide variety. They're at various steps in the process. But the bills do fall into some categories, though. Um, Suicide prevention, COVID response, criminal justice, restoring funding for services, topics like those. I did ask Robert Worthwine that question, though. He heads up Colorado's Office of Behavioral Health, you know, if he sees a theme this session. And here's what he had to say. I think the theme is that, that people are frustrated that they're not getting the care they need. So we're here at a point where multiple people, multiple legislators, state agencies are making efforts to improve behavioral health services because because we're just not delivering for the Coloradans the way we need to. Lee, you mentioned mental health legislation in response to COVID. What's being proposed? So there's a lot of momentum around one particular bill that's come in direct response to COVID. It's come up in all of my conversations with people in the mental health world as being pretty significant. HB 1258, it's called the Rapid Mental Health Response for Colorado Youth. And it would create a temporary program to help school-age kids get care by paying for three mental health sessions. These would be available to school-age kids after being screened through an online portal. Here's Representative Kevin Van Winkle. He's one of the Republican sponsors. Cara transitions beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. The state's youth need the support of their parents, families, communities, and mental health professionals beyond the school walls to address the pain, trauma, and loneliness that they've experienced over the last year. We know that over the past year, the percentage of young people going into northern Colorado hospitals with mental health needs has been going up, and that's a reflection of a national trend, things happening all across the country. I've talked with pediatricians, psychologists, school counselors, all of whom say they've seen way more kids coming in with issues like anxiety, depression, compared to the usual. What was the testimony like during the committee hearing on this bill last week? Several young people stood up and talked about their own mental health struggles before and during COVID. Here's one of them. Her name's Tessa Voucher. She's a junior at Cherry Creek High School, which is in Greenwood Village. She said as a young teen, she felt overwhelming pressure to fit in at school. With no knowledge on why I was feeling the sense of loneliness, I convinced myself I was alone in my feelings and thoughts. I didn't know I had people I could reach out to. 
When my thoughts of not being good enough turned into suicidal ones, I felt even more alone. Why am I feeling like this so young? She described alcohol abuse and self-harm eventually ending up at the Pediatric Mental Health Institute at Children's Hospital. I will forever be grateful for the time I spent there, but not everyone is as lucky as I am. Not every family has the money to help their kids with therapy or mental health groups. I've been so blessed with the opportunity to go to therapy and get the help I needed. But how does the story end when that's not the case? Tessa did urge a yes vote, as did several other kids who stood up to testify. This bill has bipartisan support. It's sponsored by two Democrats and two Republicans. What does the opposition sound like? Some legislators had questions and some concerns that this program could be slow to take hold in rural parts of the state. Um, If this program is so needed, where's the funding going to come from to make it something that is more permanent? Concerns that there's no real formal referral process to actually get kids to the online portal and to services. And then there's always a question about whether or not there are actually enough mental health professionals to meet any increase in need, you know, like a workforce issue. The answer may end up being in the reimbursement rate. Will the state incentivize clinicians to participate by paying them enough? The rapid mental health response for Colorado Youth Bill did pass in committee on a vote of 11 to 1 last week. It was referred to appropriations this week, where lawmakers might take it up Wednesday morning. I'm wondering what other mental health-related bills are under discussion. Yeah, there are a few. A bill to create a three-digit number in Colorado that people can call if they're in some sort of mental health crisis. So that number would be 988 instead of 911. There's also a bill to improve interactions between first responders and people with disabilities. And then on Friday, a bill that would create a program to strengthen mental health services after a disaster, so after a mass shooting or a wildfire, for example, that is set to be heard in committee later this week. Lee Patterson is KUNC's mental health reporter. Lee, thanks so much. You're welcome. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Colorado's official population count is now nearly 5.8 million people. We learned that number and more from the Census Bureau on Monday when they announced the first round of results from the 2020 census count. We're going to bring in KUNC's Adam Reyes now, who's been following the census count for us. Adam, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So aside from the official population number, what did we learn from the Census Bureau on Monday? Big headline, we are one of six states getting an extra representative in Congress. Not really a surprise. Experts have predicted that for a while, but it's now finally confirmed. So the state's independent redistricting commission will be creating an eighth congressional district. All in all, we get more sway in federal politics, including the Electoral College, which picks the president. There we gained an extra vote, now a total of 10. But census data isn't just about politics. Businesses, nonprofits, researchers, and others really rely on it for a host of reasons. Elizabeth Garner is Colorado State demographer. She says this release is like Christmas. We have been waiting for this present for uh, a while, and so we're really excited to get these numbers. Colorado's 2020 population count is up more than 700,000 people since 2010's count. We rank sixth in the U.S. for the growth percentage over the last decade, beating out the growth in our region and the U.S. overall by several percentage points. We also moved up in state population rankings, now the 21st largest state. 
Going back to that clip we heard from Elizabeth Garner, she said she's waited a while for these results. Tell us what she means by that. So these results are super late. Legally, the Census Bureau needed to put out these numbers last December. Same legal guidelines say the Bureau was supposed to release local and demographic data last month. That has now been delayed to late summer or early fall. And what is the Census Bureau saying about why the data is late? They say they just need more time to process the data this round. The pandemic created an ever-shifting timeline for the count last year. Also, a historic year for natural disasters that census takers had to navigate, like the wildfires we experienced here. Those and other unique complications created concern among observers in Colorado and nationally about how accurate and complete the count can be. Is this count accurate? During Monday's announcement, Census Bureau officials repeatedly insisted that it is. We have taken the time we needed to produce the high-quality statistics that we and the public expect. While no census is perfect, we are confident that today's 2020 census results meet our high data quality standards. We would not be releasing them to you otherwise. That was Bureau Acting Director Ron Jarman. A full review of the data's accuracy and completeness won't be out for several months after the final data release, but they did some simpler measurements for now, like comparing their count to population estimates they calculated using births, deaths, and other data. They're satisfied with the comparison because the counts for the states and the nation overall were less than 1% different than the estimates. State demographer Elizabeth Garner did a similar estimate for Colorado, and the difference there is less than 1% too, so she's feeling confident about this overall number. In previous counts, the count was pretty accurately able to tell us the population of most states and the country as a whole, but it struggled with populations of some cities, towns, counties, or certain demographics like black and Hispanic people, children, and renters. The Bureau itself admits that it missed a million kids in 2010. Those specifics, which we'll be getting later this year, is the part Garner and others still worry about. We're going to be continuing our efforts Birth, death, and migration, those are the components of change that we look at. So we will really be able to evaluate a lot of changes in Colorado, as well as housing units, to make sure that things were counted the way that they should be. She says that local data might be able to help the state correct any inaccuracies in the census's yearly estimates, which happen between the once-a-decade full counts. Adjusting those estimates will also adjust federal tax allocation during those years. That was KUNC's Adam Reyes giving an update on the census. Adam, thanks as always for your reporting on this. My pleasure. Last November, voters narrowly passed a measure to reintroduce gray wolves to Colorado. Now, state wildlife officials are tasked with implementing the process, which may involve winning over some residents who are wary of wolves. Recently, a group of second graders at a Denver-area school have come up with their own plan to help prepare the public for wolf reintroduction. For more on this, we're joined by Paige Blankenbuehler, who wrote about it for High Country News. Paige, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. The topic of reintroducing the gray wolf has really been a thorny issue in the state. For people who maybe haven't been following it, can you briefly outline some of the perspectives on it that you've sort of seen? For those not familiar, this went to a vote last November. Um, it was Proposition 114. And, you know, it took a while for us to get results on that because it was so close. This was an issue that largely passed on um, urban rural dynamics in some way. There were very few counties in the state that actually voted in support of this. But 
the measure was carried by um, some larger, more urban counties. So it did end up passing. And, you know, some of the, the thorny issues here are really just when you have wolves back on the landscape, there's the potential for a lot of conflict between human and wolf populations, between livestock, uh, ranching, agriculture, and, you know, recreationists who are on the landscape in some of these areas where wolves may be back in Colorado. And that takes us to the second grade students who wanted to help people better understand, I guess, the whole process. Tell us a bit about the students. Where are they from? And then why did they decide to create this proposal? This is a, a group of second grade students at the STEM lab, which um, is in North Glen. Um, it's a suburban Denver County. And, you know, this whole school's curriculum is based off of something they call problem-based learning. You know, each year they sort of embark in taking on this really uh, large real-world problem and try and research it. They talk to people and they come up with solutions or ideas. So the task that was put in front of these particular students was, you know, this has passed. It's happening. Wolves are coming back to Colorado. What are the ways that we can minimize conflict? between humans and wolves. And yeah, these, these students were really, um, you know, endearing and so earnest about it. There were three classes, three second grade classes total, and there were a number of groups and they actually, you know, spent several months researching this. And then uh, that culminated in these Zoom presentations. And, and that's where I was lucky enough to kind of uh, sit in and, and hear about it. What were the presentations like? I'm imagining, you know, they took it pretty seriously. Yeah. So, you know, they they had three different occasions where they were presenting. So initially this was um, all three classes doing their presentations in front of a panel of experts, which included some folks from Colorado State University's Center for Carnivore Coexistence Lab as well as, you know, managers from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. They also spoke with ranchers along the way. And so they had a lot of practice, actually, by the time that I got to listen in. The presentation that I heard was uh, to a wider group of parents and conservationists, uh, wildlife managers, a broader CSU network, and they took it very seriously. You know, this was your um, typical Zoom call where you had just like dozens of black squares with names on them, the, the participants. And then, you know, there were some students who were doing this entirely remotely. So we had some some folks in their own sort of Zoom room, but then there was also a camera inside of a classroom where some of the students have been meeting in person. So it was kind of this mixed group of in-person and remote and a little bit of nervousness in front of the camera, pulling at their face masks, um, a lot of howling, a lot of dancing around and twirling, a fair amount of distraction too and getting off topic, but you know, they had just wonderful ideas. It was really endearing. You had mentioned there were some folks there from Colorado State University's Center for Human Carnivore Coexistence. This, you know, wolf reintroduction is something a lot of the experts there have been closely watching. I'm curious what they sort of thought of the presentation. So one of the uh, experts who was there was Kevin Crooks, and he is the executive director of, of that center on um, human carnivore coexistence that you mentioned. And uh, one of his responses to an idea from the students was, oh, I actually think that might work. <laughs> and this was uh, referring to, you know, using lasers and sounds to trigger movements um, to spook wolves, basically. So having a perimeter around a campsite or a tent. And so, yeah, they gave this 
whole presentation about how that might work. And that was his response there. And some of the other ideas, you know, ranged from how you can get cattle to behave a certain way in the presence of predators and training them that way. And then just, you know, educating the public about like, here is what you do. Here's how you think through this um, and pointing at some materials from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. You know, that agency is tasked with the reintroduction in there. They're doing a lot of public outreach. And what these students are doing is a really interesting sort of thought experiment. Um, it's really interesting to bring these uh, really complex conservation issues to a group of people who are so young and getting them thinking about that at such a young age. And it would be really interesting to see this replicated across the state. Um, and it's something that Colorado Parks and Wildlife is doing in different ways, but really, you know, embedding in more rural communities and hearing from students whose parents or teachers or neighbors are much closer to these issues who are actually going to be impacted by the the reintroduction, you know, who are going to be in proximity to more of the conflict and um, impacts and, you know, might actually see wolves on the landscape at some point. As someone who is familiar with this issue, did you learn anything new about wolves? You know, honestly, yes. I've been doing a lot of reporting for High Country News Magazine about the wolf reintroduction. I've edited some stories on that. I'm in the middle of a larger project on this. And, you know, hearing the perspective of um, second graders on this issue, it was really enlightening. I mean, um, the ideas that they were thinking through and and the solutions that they came up with, um, you know, it going through this presentation, they, they seem rather obvious, but I honestly hadn't thought of them before. You know, the, the campsite perimeters and um, trigger alarms like that, that makes a lot of sense, but it's not something that I had like fully wrapped my mind around before I had heard these kids talking about it. Um, And these are real questions that the entire state's going to have to grapple with. You know, there's a lot of recreation that happens in Western Colorado, and, and some of these areas are going to overlap with uh, wolf reintroduction habitats. So there's going to be a lot of, um, yeah, just public thinking through how we're going to think about, you know, the way that we're experiencing the outdoors differently when we have to coexist with wolves on the landscape. Paige Blankenbuehler is an associate editor for High Country News. You'll find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Paige, thank you so much for talking with us about this. Yeah, happy to. Thanks for having me. That's our show for today. Next time, we'll get a Colorado perspective on President Biden's decision to pull troops from Afghanistan by September 11th. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 